Warriors. My name is Pam Palmiter and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, and governments. I try to feature as many Indigenous peoples as possible who are truly representing the warrior spirits of our people and who are making a real difference for our families, communities, and nations. One of those people is Russ Diabo. This episode is part two of a two-part podcast about Russ Diabo and his search for identity, his participation in native resistance on both sides of the border, and the political history that has led up to the development of federal First Nation policy. Last week's episode covered the history. In this episode, he'll continue where we left off and talk about his thoughts for the future. So we wound up with a short platform, which became chapter seven in the Red Book. And... um, a longer platform that we fought for that Chrétien announced on the campaign trail in October of uh, 1993 at Winnesquewin there, that cultural heritage center in Saskatchewan. And, um, you know, we, we had done a process of including people. We held policy forums that were open to anybody to give input into the platform that our commission was working on. And it was Dave Nawagabo and I that had kind of the lead roles. He was co-chair of the Aboriginal People's Commission and I as policy uh, vice president. Other people were involved too, but we we kind of had the job of kind of shepherding it through the process. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, it was open to the Aboriginal organizations, to Aboriginal people. We held a national policy forum. You didn't have to be a liberal. You know, it was open to everybody. And everybody we heard once it was released, everybody said it's a good platform. Um, unfortunately, once the Liberals won a majority in 1993, <sighs> Gretchen named um, Ron Irwin as Minister of Indian Affairs, and Dave and I said, well, who the hell is this guy? Because we didn't know him. Yeah, We'd, a- we'd actually been working um, with Keith Penner, former member of Parliament, who was the chair of the Special Parliamentary Committee on Indian Self-Government in 1983. We got him involved to help us, you know, convince Gretchen to accept ideas like the inherent right to self-government during the Charlottetown Accord. So we were working with Keith, you know, um, and um, they bring Ron Ehrman in. We came to find out that he's a former mayor of Sault Ste. Marie, uh, one of Cretchen's cronies, and he was also parliamentary secretary to Cretchen when Cretchen was a justice minister during the Constitutional Council. So it's pretty clear that he brought Ron Irwin in to keep the lid on the file. Yeah. And to report to him on it. Um, And, you know, I was kind of, as vice president of policy, I was kind of following her around at the beginning there um, when they first got in uh, to see what they were going to do about the election promises they made. And, um, you know, they, um, they started out, you know, talking um, generally about the issues. But by the time we get around to 1995, they announced uh, this inherent right to self-government policy. Because that was Mm. one of the promises in the Red Book was a liberal government would act on the premise that the inherent right to um, self-government 
is already included in Section 35 of the Constitution. Right. And uh, when they formed the majority government, though, they came up with a policy without consulting and unilaterally imposed that policy. And they went out and told the Alberta chiefs first that this is going to be the policy Ron Irwin did. And um, that that's when they started to force their interpretation of self-government under Section 35 as a policy. And basically, it's a municipal to municipalization mm-hmm. policy, converts bans into municipalities because it says, policy says what's on the table, what's not on the table. And it says there will be no international uh, uh, right of self-determination recognized. It says it right in the policy. And that's still in effect today. That's and they attached money to it, and hundreds of bands are negotiating under that policy today. Uh, some of the groups at modern treaty tables are including self-government as well, and some are negotiating self-government separately. Uh, an example of that is uh, the Anishinaabeg Nation Education Act was, was negotiated as a sectoral agreement under that policy. The Micmac education uh, out in Nova Scotia was under that policy because they have comprehensive and sectoral negotiations under that self-government policy. But that policy is the umbrella policy for everything else, including land claims. And it's still in place today. Yeah, well, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you come from this incredible on-the-ground First Nation experience at political levels, working on, you know, the Liberal Aboriginal platform and and then a thousand other things after that. I mean, you worked for the the AFN, you've been advocating at the UN. I've seen you over there, you and and Art. I mean, you I know you had a, a role in Defenders of the Land. You were huge during Idle No More. And so like, where are we today for all the work that has been put in by yourself and others? Like, where are we today? Are we so much more advanced from that inherent rights policy? Has thing have things changed, or what's what's the current trajectory? Do you think? I don't think things have changed much because you know, um, the chiefs organizations like the Assembly of First Nations and uh, the provincial territorial organizations. Across Canada, mm-hmm. uh, the chiefs' organizations, anyway, are working with the Trudeau government. You know, Trudeau injected 17 billion dollars in new money on top of the 10 billion annually that they spend on Aboriginal issues. Um, but that money is is for, as Art says, Art used to say, uh, for Indian Act dependency on reserve programs. So that 17 billion isn't going to transform. It's not going to be any fundamental change to the colonial system that we're under. Once that money's spent, we're still going to be under the Indian Act. And the only way out of the Indian Act is a self-government policy, according to them. And they have Uh, preconditions in that policy, which basically where you have to accept the sovereignty of the crown, including the federal and provincial governments, over everything you do. Provinces have a veto in uh, anything that touches their area of jurisdiction under their Section 92 powers you know, under the Constitution Act 1867. So you're basically a local government, um, I mean, a municipal government. Trudeau's even called it a fourth level of government uh, after he got elected in as prime minister. So do you, do you think, I mean, you know this stuff inside and out, and there are people who literally 
read everything you write on this and and watch uh, everything that you do in terms of videos and webinars. Do you think that the majority of chiefs and councils in this country know know the implications, know what this what this actually means when they're at these negotiating tables? I don't think so. But what they're doing is they're following the money, right? Uh, because there's money attached to the negotiations over and above the program funding you get. And, um, you know, you and I both share the same experience of running for AFN National Chief. Mm -hmm. And when I ran for AFN National Chief last year, it was pretty clear that the Liberals um, were lobbying for Perry or another status quo candidate to get in. But really, yeah. they wanted Perry. Right up to the day of the election, Bennett was in there in the building um, meeting with the Alberta Chiefs Caucus, uh, promoting um, you know, them buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, among other issues. Yeah, so, well, we were all there and we saw that happening and we, you know, we saw the candidates, you included, you know, challenge this and raise questions and and everything just went along as status quo. The election proceeded as usual. Well, I instigated the other candidates to do take that position. Mm -hmm. I was the first one. I went and fought, found um, Sheila North and uh, yep. and Miles and said, "Hey, did you know Bennett's there meeting with chiefs? You know, uh, while we're having the voting." And of course, they they agreed it was wrong for her to be influencing, especially since a lot of the federal funding. Well, that's where AFN gets its money. But in any case. Um, you can see that now with the MOUs that Perry signed on fiscal relations and uh, joint priorities mm -hmm. and this bilateral mechanism, they call it, which is really an AFN federal cabinet committee. Uh, they're built into the, the liberal process and they have agreements on coordinating communications and everything. So really, I would say the liberal party is is running AFN and basically as a branch office at this point. Well, you know, and there's, it's, there's no arm's length relief. It seems like a far cry from the NIB of the days when you used to be there. Well, you know, um, Art and I used to talk about that, and I think he writes about it in his book, Unsettling Canada, or maybe in the Reconciliation Manifesto. But he said his father got involved in working with the chiefs because he thought that was the way to go. But towards the end, his father saw it was important to work with the people. Mm-hmm because the chiefs basically are, are co-opted. Um, the band office, the chief and council band office system is beholden to Ottawa. And so there's a big schism between leadership and membership because you know the chiefs are following what Ottawa does to keep the money flowing because of the dependency on federal uh, funding. And um, you know that's the whole reason why fiscal relations was the first issue that Perry latched onto when he became national chief. Or, you know, when, when Trudeau was elected as prime minister. And um, so Art and I, you know, during his years, that's why we focused on working with grassroots people and trying to create awareness about how the system works and how we need to, if we want fundamental change, that we have to do it from the ground up through people's movements, not through chiefs' organizations. And I guess, in a sense, that's what you're focusing on in, in this podcast mm -hmm. and things, you know, uh, is focusing on that as well. And I think that's what we have to do is create that awareness. There's a whole new cohort of youth. We owe it to them to tell them how this system works and how their aspirations and goals and objectives as young people, as young families, um, 
if they don't get organized and do something about it, they're going to wind up living through the same colonial system that we we grew up with. And yeah. it's not going to change. And, and that's the thing is, in all this nation-to-nation reconciliation talk, the Trudeau government doesn't admit that colonialism exists today, right here, right now. Yeah, it's uh, all it, historical. It, yeah, that's right. And that's what we have to challenge. And we have now in this election year, I think we have to take them on and say for the past, you know, three, four years, you've duped us, you know, you, you've misled yeah. us because well, uh, you've used that. It, it's rhetoric. You haven't done anything. Uh, and, basically and what happened, empty. Yeah. And what happened with the Wet'suwet'en in BC shows mm-hmm. that in terms of land rights, their comprehensive claims policy, you know, is still based on extinguishment. They're not recognizing Aboriginal title. Oh, not at all. And 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 here's the thing that you know I I try to impress on younger people who say don't know all of this history that you have shared. I, I said you know if you look at someone like Resta Abo, the last thing he would want to ever do is run for the AFN. He's been you know uh, a critic of AFN in recent years and and how they're actually working counter to our interests. So it must be very significant that you ran for the AFN. Not because you wanted to be at the AFN, but because you were so concerned about what this liberal agenda is. That we're, I think one of the ways you described it is that we're kind of at this place where irreparable damage can be done to our rights if we allow this, you know, federal legislative framework and all the other federal policies to move forward as they as the AFN is letting it happen. Well. Truth be told, it was three strong uh, Indigenous women that forced me to run. <laughs> I didn't want to do it, but um, they agreed that I should use it as the platform to bring out the issues of what mm-hmm. the Liberal government is doing to us, and also the close relationship between the Liberal government and the AFN. Um, and I did get 40 chiefs to support me on the first ballot. It went down yep. to 10 after when they saw Perry was likely to win. Yeah. And that surprised me that I even had 40 because I had zero expectation of winning. But I did want to bring the issues out. And I think I did help create awareness from the feedback I got on social media and, you know, meeting people. Oh, oh, you you did. It was so huge because, you know, um, running for the AFN, as you know, gets media attention. And you were always very laser focused on the threat of this current uh, federal government legislative framework and and the impact it could have on our rights and and even when you go to your um, website which shares your platform normally you hear from politicians oh if you elect me I will you know do this for you and I will advocate for this project you know the usual political promises but yours is you know very much focused on here's the threat we're facing here's here's the core issues that you know, we have to focus on, which are the ones that, that, you know, First Nations have been advocating forever in terms of protecting our lands and waters and making sure that we're self-determining. And I think that, I think even though the AFN election is over, your, you know, both your website and the work you do in the media and social media is still helping to educate people on that. And I think that that's a, that's a huge contribution because young people, they're not listening to the radio. They're not watching TV. They're on primarily social media. And I notice a lot of them now are even uh, as much as they're doing YouTube, they're all a larger number 
are listening to podcasts while they're at the gym or while they're driving to school or you mm-hmm. know e- even in their classes. So that's why I want especially young grassroots people to be able to hear your voice, especially ones who just don't watch TV or listen to the radio. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm well, a grandparent, so I, I know what the younger generations are saying and thinking. I do have uh, feedback personally. And, so, uh, so if they were, if, you know, if there were youth here listening right this very minute, we're not live, this will be posted later, um, and they pose a question to you, because I've had this uh, question posed to me by high school students, what do you think is the biggest threat to First Nations right now? What would be your response? I think it's our own in, internal um, lack of capacity and willingness uh, to get organized, to do the proper research, to plan, to take on the system, to change it. Um, you know, I lay that out. Uh, if you look at my webpage, you'll see I lay out mm-hmm. what I, I have a checklist for self-determination plans. And I think that's important is, you know, we need to get out of the Indian Act uh, band and band council system and develop, well, rebuild our own uh, indigenous decision-making institutions and processes. I mean, Article 18 of the UN Declaration says we should be doing exactly that, you know, mm-hmm. that we have the right, right to do that, uh, to choose our own uh, representation through our own indigenous institutions and systems. And bands and band councils are not our own systems. Those are colonial systems. Mm-hmm. So we need to start figuring out how to start uh, meeting and holding um, assemblies and gatherings under our own protocols, uh, using our own diplomacy, under our own spiritual, um, you know, um, protocols. And um, not only that, but we need to get, you know, figuring out what's going on with um, um, the lands and resources, not only on reserve, but around us in our traditional territories. Mm -hmm. So we need the capacity to know about resource development, the corporations, the companies, the third parties operating on our territories. Um, we need mapping capability to create our own maps, uh, both mentally and physically, mm-hmm. about our territory and how we want to see it managed into the future for future generations. We need to have a say in regional planning, not just reserve planning. And um, and we need to form the old confederacies we used to have. Uh, to operate at higher levels to change the nature of this country. And it won't happen unless we organize ourselves internally to do that. And I think it's this generation of youth that the burden is on them to either do that. And and to be honest, I don't think each band or community is going to survive. You know, I think some are going to be assimilated into the, the melting pot by signing agreements to become municipalities and become more like an ethnic group, a minority instead of, um, peoples because mm-hmm. that's been the goal of the government all along is internationally to say you know that we're we're minorities we're not peoples because as long as we can assert that we're peoples with the right of self-determination um we're a threat to the federal provincial constitutional framework that they're trying to impose over the top of us or to maintain over the top of us we have to bust open the constitution i think and uh, and demand international standards be applied here and probably have international oversight into what's going on because Canada can't be trusted to implement the UN Declaration or other human rights instruments. You know, it's clear that they're trying to recolonize us uh, 
through domestic law instead of recognize Trudeau is trying to pull one over on us. He's trying to define self-determination through domestic law. Mm-hmm. And if we don't develop our own uh, plans on what we mean by self-determination, and that means focusing on our own internal development um, to get out of the Indian Act and not just in on our terms, not on their terms, and their self-government policy or land we have to come up with our approach to action and negotiations, or if we have to do it, or going to court, or going to the UN. It all requires having research on your historical and cultural background and what the Crown's done to you. So, you know, a lot of the activists at the front lines, I was one at one time. Mm -hmm. You need to have some evidence behind what you're saying to be credible. Yeah. You know, uh, amongst Indigenous peoples and, and with the state government, you know, federal and provincial governments. So that's what I think we need to focus on is getting our house in order internally. And Art talks about that in his book, The Reconciliation Manifesto, and how we need to change these chiefs' organizations into people's organizations. But that means from the bottom up, we have to get organized to do that. Well, so that leads me to my next question, because, I mean, Art, like yourself, is pretty foundational in this country, and he's written several books, and then you and I have contributed chapters to Whose Land Is It Anyway, which is a free PDF book online, um, which, you know, talks about lots of these issues. But I'm wondering, Russ, because I've asked you this many times before, when is your book going to come out? (laughs) (laughs) A book like that's writing itself. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, about it and, um, you know, I hope to, to have time to do that. It takes time. It does. As you know, to sit down and write. I mean, you're more prolific writer than I am. It takes me a lot to pull it out of myself, you know, and um, writing a book takes a block of time. And, you know, I have to keep working. I'm a consultant. So in order to pay the bills, I have to, to work. Yeah. Um, I do do a lot of volunteer work. I mean, the stuff with Defenders of the Land, uh, I don't know more. Uh, mm-hmm. That's all volunteer. But I have to work to subsidize that. You know. Yeah, it, it seems like pay. that's the challenge of many on-the-ground activists today, that, you know, the, the majority of of what's being done is volunteer or pro bono or in, in whatever you want to call it, in-kind contribution. But ultimately... Um, in order to have capacity, in order to do that, you still have to be able to make money and support your family and have a roof over your head and 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 all of these other things. And and I think the government knows that very well. They know how tapped, you know, um, our activists they, they are. They know how to take advantage of our poverty because that's what they're doing with these agreements, offering these, you know, this money and per capita payments and stuff to, to get consent to buy us out, basically. And to re- relieve the crown of its liabilities for how they've treated us for hundreds of years. You know? Right. Um, and, I, and I think one of their biggest weapons is literally having AFN on their side. Yes. You know, oh, thank you for this important first step. Thank you for this important reconciliation. It's always praising the government as opposed to, I mean, in the... It wasn't that that long ago that they used to do analyses and critiques of federal government positions and report cards that... You know, condemned them. And we don't get any of that, despite the fact that the AFN is so well funded now, especially under this government. And then it leaves it up to people like us to actually do all the research and do all that analysis and get as much of it out on social media as possible. 
without all the, you know, associated millions of dollars and researchers and supports that AFN does. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the case. And, um, you know, it's, um, you know, I guess the thing that I see is that um, they are taking advantage of that. And mm-hmm. a lot of our people need to understand um, how this system works, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, Having been part of it myself, um, you see the parties make the promises like, you know, Trudeau did in 2015. But it's the bureaucracy that implements, interprets and implements those policies. It's left to them to take existing laws, policies, and practices and and communications and convince everybody that they're coming up with something new when really they're just implementing the existing templates, you know, like their self-government policy and land links. And that's the thing I would say is this this uh, rights recognition framework uh, legislation they were going to introduce before Christmas ended delayed because, you know, First Nations were rejecting mm-hmm. it for chiefs which I like to think our campaign had a lot to do with, our truth campaign. Totally. And um, it's they've broken it into pieces, and now they're going after, you know, the 10 principles on Indigenous relationships as their preconditions are still there. The fiscal relations process is still there. Uh, dissolving Indian Affairs and creating two new departments and two new ministries is still there, mm-hmm. um, you know, for their objectives of, in my view, terminating our rights. And um, so they've broken it into pieces, but you know, they did the same thing with the white paper, you know, yeah. after the red paper and everything in 1971, I've got internal correspondence from Indian Affairs saying, well, we'll just not talk about the time frame anymore. You know, they had a five-year time frame to implement that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the 50th anniversary of the 1969 white paper this year, this fall. Uh, we should probably do something about that. Uh, yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize it was, I didn't even think about the fact that it was 50 years. Yeah, 50 years. And uh, they're doing the same thing now that they did 50 years ago, which is to break the the whole mm-hmm. proposal into pieces and talk about the components rather than the whole and to get rid of the time frames. So, you know, they got rid of um, imposing the legislation in December on the framework. And instead, they're having all these negotiation tables across the country to set as many precedents as they can um, under the templates that they're using under self-government and comprehensive claims. Um, So they don't really need the legislation. You know, all they need to do is keep getting agreements under those cabinet uh, mandates. And, you know, it's the bureaucracy that's really driving this. Like, um, it's not... Trudeau or his ministers that designed the plan to implement the promise. Mm-hmm. It's Michael Warnick, the clerk of the Privy Council, uh, people like Joe Wilde, the senior assistant deputy mm-hmm. minister, who follows, you know, Carolyn Bennett around everywhere she goes because she doesn't know what she's talking about. But they have a deputy minister oversight committee, an assistant deputy minister committee that Wilde sits on. And these all report up to Warnick and up to the cabinet and Trudeau and Jerry Butts, you know, in the and um, the prime minister's office there. They're running, running the show still. And some and of them our, are the and our si- people don't know that. You know, they don't know the machinery. Don't. And some of the people have been there literally for decades. Have been under successive federal and conservative governments. And you know, the very same bureaucrats we are fighting under Harper are are still in their exact same jobs. Well, Michael Warnick's a good example. He's the 
the top bureaucrat in Ottawa, and he was Harper's deputy minister of Indian Affairs for nine years. And he's the one that did all the dirty tricks on monitoring hotspots and buying on Cindy Blackstock and, you know, all the the stuff that Harper did to us. Trudeau is still continuing it. He's just adding honey. It just sounds nicer. Yes. Yeah, it just sounds nicer, but you they know, have for, a better better public relations strategy. Oh, they clearly do. I mean, they co-opt our own words. Even I mean, how many times have they said colonization and you know we're going to address sexism and racism? And decolonization. And, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they just basically tell us what we want to hear and do the exact opposite. But I think um, I think you know what you bring to this, Russ, is is all of it, the politics, the legal, the on the ground, the grassroots. And it's, you know, the fact that you're helping to inform the people is really informing the real governments because it's the people traditionally who are our, who are our real governments. And, and I think all the youth and young people who are, who are, you know, inspired and want to take action and want to know more, um, social media, and this, you know, access to the internet has been a real gift for us because we don't only have to get our message out in the mainstream when we're talking about, you know, informing ourselves in our communities. It's really, we have access through podcasts and videos and YouTube and webinars and, and blogs. And there's ways that we can, we can cut through the noise and help educate ourselves. And I think you're you're one of the ones who have been, you know, doing this for so long in every avenue possible that uh, it's something for us for us to follow. And I hope a lot of I hope a lot of the young people who are really I think they're going to have to be the ones that are on the ground. You know, um, already our people in Wet'suwet'en territory or in you know, Muskrat Falls and Mohawk Territory and Mi'kmaq Territory. You know, there's multiple dimensions to this. It's not just advocacy. It's also boots on the ground. It's also physical resistance and protection of our territory. And I think the work that you do, not just inspiring, but it gives people the tools and the facts to be able to challenge the government one-on-one. And I know personally, I have been following you for a long time before I'd even met you and and I really appreciate and learn so much from everything you do. And and I hope you keep doing it. And I hope that someday maybe someone writes the book for you <laughs> based on everything, you know, that, that you've shared. Because I know every time I talk to you, you have a new story, some kind of new insight, new analysis. And and it's just incredibly valuable, just like, you know, Art shared his legacy with all of us. And I know he was a very special, close person to you, um, a close friend. And uh, I'm we're so thankful that you're still here sharing all of this information and analysis. And and I hope that, you know, we can have you back on this podcast and talk about specific issues, because honestly, I'd love to just pick your brain about a whole bunch of things that are happening across the country. Um, but thank you so much for everything that you're you're doing and and what you've contributed you're a real leader of the people thanks pam it's been great talking to you and sure okay. i'll be glad to come come back again oh great well i'm gonna hold you to that now <laughs> okay okay thanks russ thanks bye. bye thanks to all of you for listening to my podcast the warrior life I hope that you will like this episode, share it with your friends, and leave feedback in the comment section. 
If you're new here, please consider subscribing to this podcast as we have lots of great interviews lined up for 2019. For more information, you can check out my website, pampometer.com. Stay strong, warriors. Yeah, 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 yeah.